Our text this morning is John 7, 14 to 24. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man can receive circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I make a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. I love singing songs like we just did in the sense that they they so poetically and beautifully remind us of the gospel and the hope that is ours as we proclaim it to the nations that God is working in ways that we cannot see and that ultimately victory belongs to the Lord. I love that. You you sing these songs if you're like me and you leave thinking, put me in, coach. (laughs) I'm going. Uh, This is going to be amazing and the whole world is going to believe. And then I'm also thankful, though, for passages like this that remind us of what is often the reality of proclaiming Christ to the nations. This is Jesus proclaiming himself. And in this, we get to see a response that's fairly normal to anyone who's been on the mission field for 10 minutes and tried to share the gospel with someone. It looks a lot more like this than maybe we feel like it should look when we sing songs like that. And we need both. We need to know that there's always a thread of God working his will among the nations to save a people for himself, for every tribe and tongue and nation. And we go in that certain knowledge. But also we see in Christ that by doing that, there are hearts that are hard. Sin hardens our hearts to the point where instead of receiving him in faith and joy as we ought, There's hardness. So in our passage for this morning, we see the familiar reality that Jesus constantly taught with the kind of authority that he could only possess if he had been sent by God. No one can teach with the kind of authority that Jesus taught with if they had not been sent by God. And likewise, he made claims about himself, who he was, why he was there, what he was doing, where he came from. They could only be true if he had come from God. Consequently, the big question that confronted everyone who encountered Jesus and heard his teaching, just like the question that will confront everybody to whom or with whom we share the gospel, whether here or to the ends of the earth, the big question that confronted everyone was whether or not he was who he claimed to be. His claims were so big, you can't not make a decision about this. You have to decide, because if he is who he said it he is, it means one thing, which is everything, now and into eternity. And if he isn't, he's a nut job or a lunatic, 
and we need to have nothing to do with him. His claims were so big, you couldn't avoid that question. Those kinds of claims, and that kind of question is front and center in our passage. And so while teaching in the temple during the Feast of Booths, everyone, including the Jewish leaders, noticed that Jesus taught with with insight and wisdom and power that seemed to go way beyond his education and training. The text says, and we'll come back to this, that they marveled at his learning, his ability to handle the word of God. And that, once again, begged the question of where this learning and this authority came from. Was it truly from God as Jesus claimed, or was it demonic as the Jewish leaders claimed? Well, when questioned in this regard, when the Jewish leaders and the crowds brought this question before Jesus, he provided a series of contrasts for them between himself and them. And the point of that was to explain to them why they were unwilling or perhaps unable to, to receive him in his teaching. Why he, why they didn't understand him for who he, who he truly was. And so two main things I want all of us to get from this passage. And that is one, that all that Jesus said and did, as we read about it in the gospel accounts, the New Testament accounts in particular, All that Jesus said and did was from the Father. And second, all who truly seek God, everyone who truly seeks God, will receive Jesus and his teaching. You can't separate those things. And the main takeaway for us then, what do we do in response to this? The main takeaway is to give ourselves in increasing measure to allowing Jesus' words to shape every aspect of who we are how we see the world, how we see ourselves, how we think, what we do, what we don't do, how we feel in any given moment and moments of injustice and moments of glory. All of that needs to be shaped by Jesus' words. That's why part of the mission that we're on is to proclaim Christ to all the nations, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. That's this. So to help you see all of that, I got four C's for you, which is really cool. I had three C's and one non-C, and I just, I just made it work, you know. So instead of setting, it's context. So we'll look at the context of the scene, the confusion it caused, the claim Jesus made, and the contrasts that he provided. Let's pray. God, I, my earnest prayer this week and my earnest prayer right now is that you would help us by the power of your spirit in increasing measure to see Jesus for who he truly is, to hear his words and his teaching as we ought, and to respond in every way that you mean us to. May we learn from the disbelief and disobedience and hardness of the hearts of those that Jesus taught in this passage. May we find where, may we search out and where we find those seeds May we repent of them, where we find them in us. May we repent of them. Thank you that when our hope is in you, or or for those whose hope is in you, you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Your spirit dwells in us to illuminate this, the teaching of Jesus for us so that we will not respond in hardness of heart, or at least we must not. And where we find ourselves in difference to your word, even if that's the case this morning, Pray that your spirit would wake us up, not as a means of making ourselves right with you, but because we are, through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
All right, the first C, context. The context of this passage is set out for us simply, plainly, in verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. There are four components, real quick, that I want you to see from this. Jesus was teaching in the temple, in the middle of the Feast of Booths, and after telling his brothers, in a certain sense, that he wasn't even going to go. So the main thing, and Jesus taught, the main thing that set everything in motion in the scene, the, the thing that caused every, the, all the rest of the dominoes to fall, is the simple fact that Jesus taught publicly. The text doesn't tell us what he taught, which I find interesting. I kept coming back to that this week. I wonder what he said. I wonder what message he had that started all these things happening. But it doesn't tell us what he taught, only that he began teaching, and that whatever he taught caused his hearers to marvel, which caused them to respond in significant ways, which only gave Jesus the opportunity to teach further. And so it's interesting that we get to hear his teaching about his teaching, but not his teaching. The second is in the temple. This is significant in that he taught publicly, he taught the Jews, he taught formally, and in some way he was invited to teach. And so all this is embedded in the fact that he taught in the temple. It means he taught, that he, he taught publicly is important. It's significant because including, for, for lots of reasons, including the fact that he was eventually, when he was eventually arrested and private, we'll see this later in John, he was able to say, John, this is John 18, I have spoken openly to the world. So he's arrested in private, not in public. He taught in public a lot. But rather than arresting him at a time like this, they arrested him in private and he said, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. The, Jesus, the point is Jesus didn't teach as someone who had something to hide. That Jesus taught the Jewish people was another way in which he functioned as the Christ. So the fact that he taught in the temple means that he was teaching Jews. It was another way in which he was functioning as the Christ. He was the one that God had promised to send, that they claimed to be waiting for and longing for. And this is especially important in, in that John's gospel, the whole point of John's gospel, John tells us, was to help his readers believe that Jesus is the Christ. He tells this story largely because not quite like his brothers meant to, and not quite like he would on Palm Sunday just a few months later, but certainly functioned as the Christ, even though not fully revealing himself as the Christ. And so that that furthers John's aim of helping his readers believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they might have life in his name. That he taught in the temple also means that he did it formally. These weren't off-the-cuff remarks that he was making. It wasn't a primal, a, a private, informal conversation he was having with his disciples. He was speaking in a place that he knew would put him under the highest level of scrutiny. Every teacher understands this important distinction. It happens all the time, just in the course of life. Someone will ask me some theological question, and necessarily when they've Ask me on the spot, I'm, I'm glad to answer, and I never mean, of course, to intentionally mislead anyone, but by its very nature, my answer is going to be less precise. and It's going to be a little bit more informal, for sure. On the, other, on the other hand, 
if you and I are meeting for a time of more formal discipleship or counsel, I'm going to have prepared a little differently. I'm, I'm going to have give, I'll give you a, a more formal, a more precise answer to your questions. And, and of course, it goes up yet another level when I preach. I spend hours and hours studying and praying and working through not just what I say, but saying it in the best possible way every time I, I come up here. But Jesus here, by teaching in the temple, takes it to another level still. And that it was during a time where all of the Jews were together, one of the three times a year that all of the Jews, including the leaders and the high, like, it'd be like all of the national and district free church leaders being here to hear me speak, along with all the rest of the free church congregations or something like that. The point, the point is very simply that by teaching in the temple, Jesus was teaching in a way that was at the highest level, invited the highest level of scrutiny. And I, the one that I find most interesting is the fact that he was teaching in the temple means on some level he was invited to or at least formally permitted to teach. I, I tried hard, and maybe some of you can help me. I looked for longer than I should have to find a definitive answer or, or the definitive answer to who was allowed to teach. I, I wondered that a decent amount. He teaches in the synagogue. He teaches in the temple. Who was allowed to do that and why? I, I couldn't find a precise answer, but what I did find very clearly was that it required some level of invitation or at least approval. It would have been some significant leader among the Sadducees who were in charge of the temple as the Pharisees were in charge of the synagogues. Some, Some significant Sadducee would have authorized or invited Jesus to teach. The, the next aspect, or the third aspect of the context was that Jesus not only taught publicly and in the temple, but he did so during, in the middle of one of the most significant feasts of the Jews, the Feast of Booths. Again, this aspect of the context is important because, again, it put all the Jewish eyes on him. He wouldn't have been able to get out from, any, get out from under anything that he said, not that he wanted to, but there were many, many witnesses, and his teaching would be firmly fixed in the public record. Lastly, And again, curiously, we talked about this before, but I think it's important to notice here again. Jesus taught publicly in the temple during the Feast of Booths and after telling his brothers, you go up to the feast, I'm not going up to this feast. Again, we we covered mainly what he meant by that a couple weeks ago, but you may remember that Jesus in that also shared his reasoning. Why did he say what he just said? He said, for my time has not yet fully come. His main point again was, in talking to his brothers, was not that he wasn't going to go to the feast, but that he wasn't going to go to the feast in the way they wanted him to, namely in presenting himself as the Messiah, which would come at the next Passover on Palm Sunday. Again, this this matters because he did not yet reveal himself fully. He went and he taught, and that was significant, but more was yet to come. Again, in considering the context, we're able to see that whatever Jesus said in his teaching. He did so in a way that could not be missed or dismissed. Indeed, it was not missed because the next point is the response of the people who heard him teach, namely confusion. Grace, get this. Hopefully, prayerfully, I mean to be and think I am sharing the word of God with you as God means us to hear it. And so this applies to us right now. The right response for all of us, including me, The right response to any and all of Jesus' teaching, which again, that's what we're getting right now, is Jesus' teaching. 
The right response to any and all of it, for all people, is awe and wonder and worship and obedience. That's what we should do every time we come to the teaching of Jesus. Every time we encounter the words of Jesus, like we are now, we ought to drop everything. Ask the Spirit of God to give us ears to hear. Lean way in. Okay, what's next? Tell me. Help me understand this. Or in your quiet times, you're leaning way in. You're not... You're, you're not getting distracted by the ESPN notifications on your phone or, or whatever. You're leaning way in. You're fighting in the, with the help of the Spirit that it would be driven into your mind to understand it truly and into your heart that you would feel it deeply and into your, your whole being that you would live it out fully. That, that's what we ought to do every time we encounter the teaching of Jesus. Grace, it is right to marvel, as they did, at least in a certain sense, at every word uttered by Jesus. As we encounter it, to feel conviction at our failure, to fully appreciate it. You, in this life, will never come to the text fully as you ought to, and neither will I. And we ought to seek to change our lives, to match up with it every time. And so I invite you now to take a minute, just take a minute, especially as we see the response of the people to Jesus, would you take a minute to consider your own response to coming to the Word of God, to the teachings of Christ? What happens in you when you read your Bible? What happens in you when you hear it preached or read or taught? Consider that. Wherever Jesus' words are in conflict with yours, Jesus' words need to win every time. Whenever Jesus speaks in ways that make you feel uncomfortable, Every time you need to recalibrate your comfort zone. Whenever Jesus or, or wherever Jesus calls us to something that seems difficult or impossible, we need to change what we believe is possible every time. Wherever Jesus' words make us mad, how could he say that? How could he think such things? Like in this passage, we need to ask for forgiveness and for God's help to repent of that every time. Wherever Jesus' teaching is embarrassing, we would be embarrassed to tell, some, tell it to somebody. We need to examine the source of our identity, who we are and what makes us who we are every time. Where we're reluctant to live in light of what we come across and obey the commands that we find in Jesus' teaching. We need to confess our idolatry every time. And wherever we find things more desirable than Christ and his word, we need to fight for an appetite change every time. While Jesus isn't with us today to teach us in the same way that he was teaching in our passage for this morning, he is with us according to his own words, in his word and in his spirit, in an even better way. So what should have been true for those who heard Jesus teaching in the temple, in John 7, 14 to 24, should be true of you and me. We have our daily devotions each day and when we come to Berea, when we sit under the preaching of the word, and even when we hear the word read, that's why that's such a significant thing. And yet, as we all know, and as we're about to see a specific example of in this passage, because of sin, what should be and what is are often out of sync. They're often out of sync for you and me, and they were out of sync for the Jesus' temple audience here. While they did rightly, in a certain sense, marvel, and marvel in this way means they wondered very greatly or they greatly admired. In a certain sense, that was right, and they marveled at Jesus' teaching. But instead of it leading to repentance, praise, and obedience, it took an entirely different direction. 
For the Jews in our passage, their marveling stood, get this grace, their marveling stood in contrast with their expectations, which confused them. I don't know what to do with that. We thought it would be one thing, and instead it was another. And in their confusion, instead of recalibrating their expectations of who Jesus really was, they recalibrated their marveling. So we read in 15, verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it this this man has learning when he has never studied? They had already decided that Jesus was trouble. They'd already decided that he was misrepresenting himself and God. Therefore, they expected him to teach in unconvincing and uninformed and unscriptural ways. Thus, when he spoke with power, and authority when he opened the word of God to them in ways that they were not accustomed to. They were confused. And again, rather than reconsider their notion of him in light of the power in which he taught, they reframed what he taught to fit their misconception of him. Like the disobedient teenager or the scorned spouse who is hardened to the point that they are entirely committed to the opposite of whatever they hear. The Jews were firmly entrenched in their lies, is what we see. Again, the Jews were confused because Jesus' teaching unexpectedly came to them as impressive, more than anything they'd heard, even though they'd already concluded that he wasn't nearly educated or trained enough to say such things. This was not unusual for Jesus. If you've spent any time in the Gospels, you see this happened all the time. He often got this reaction, as would his disciples later when the Spirit came upon them. Later in John chapter 7, there'll be some officers who are sent to arrest Jesus. We'll read this, chapter 7, verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, they were sent to arrest Jesus, they didn't, and they they were questioned by the Pharisees, why didn't you bring him? We, we told you to. We sent you to. Why didn't you bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this guy. We don't know what to do with that. This is a big deal for Matthew. Matthew says this over and over. Chapter 7, and when Jesus finished saying these things, that is the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as those they were accustomed to hearing. They're scribes. Matthew 13, coming to his hometown, Jesus taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Matthew 22, when they, that is the Pharisees, heard it, Jesus had just taught, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. When they heard that, they marveled. And the only thing they could do because of their confusion and busted expectations was repent or leave. And they chose to leave. And then in 2233, the the Sadducees were pretty excited to see the Pharisees get stomped on. So they figured, hey, we can give it a shot. Here's our opening to look like the smart ones. Jesus silenced them too. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. I I, I spent some time in this. I found six more examples in Mark and four more in Luke, and I'm, I'm sure I missed a bunch more. But again, it was a normal occurrence for Jesus to teach in a way that caused his hearers to marvel at his clarity and authority and power and wisdom. Even as grace, it was normal for his hearers to leave confused by the gap between their expectation and the reality they experienced in his teaching. And so here's the question. 
Kids, ask yourself this. Ask your parents this on the way home. The only question, once again, was whether confused people would reconfigure their expectations to match Jesus' teaching or reconfigure Jesus' teaching to match their expectations. And that leads to Jesus' central claim. It's the third C. In response to their calling him and his teaching into question, Jesus didn't back down, (laughs) as is always the case. He ramped it up. He made the stakes even higher. Whatever he had taught that led to the confused marveling of the Jews, Jesus took it to another level still by saying not only that what I'm saying is true or you should believe me or the things I'm saying match up with the word. He he did that. But more than that, he said this was not even his teaching, but that of God the Father. Verse 16, so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. In essence, Jesus told the crowd that if they had a problem with his teaching, the real problem was not with him, but with God, the Father, because it was the Father who sent him to teach these exact things. As we've seen several times in John's Gospel, Jesus' main claim was that he spoke nothing of his own will, but only that of the Father. This shows up today in many ways too, Grace. All religions are not basically the same. There is no such thing as God-honoring belief in some generic God. There is no God who is divorced from Jesus. To believe in God is to believe in Jesus. To believe in, or to receive God is to receive Jesus as his only son, the second person of the Trinity. And to reject Jesus is to reject God. So again, what were the Jews supposed to do with this claim? What they were supposed to do is repent and believe. Again, though, this is the great question of this passage. It's the great question of Jesus' entire ministry, and it's the great question that's before us and all with whom we share the gospel today. What are we to do with this? Was Jesus truly from God as he claimed, and ultimately, was he God? Or was he demonic as the Jews claimed? Our answer to that question must and will guide every aspect of our lives, even forever. We need to get that question right, Grace. We have a crystal clear, tragic example of getting it wrong in this passage, but God gives that to us to test our hearts. And to that end, graciously, through the rest of the passage, Jesus provides proof in the way of contrasts between him and his hearers that he was from God, and in fact, they were from the evil one, which he'll say explicitly later in the gospel. And that leads us to the last C, the contrasts. As I just said, confronted by the disbelief of the Jews, Jesus responded by claiming that everything he said was only and entirely from God. And then he began as proof to them to contrast his godliness with their ungodliness. Again, to help them see that their judgment was flawed. So I wrestled through how best to help you get this, because this is a remarkable passage. I think the best way to do it is to take what Jesus said and frame it. There's seven questions that he puts before his audience. And in the way to most brilliantly see the contrast between what they ought to have done and what they did and what Jesus meant them to do and what Jesus himself did and what they actually did is to put these questions before you as Jesus put them before him. The first question, verse 17, is found in verse 17. Jesus says, if, if anyone's will, 
if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching that I just gave to you is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. And the question embedded in this that he was putting before the Jews and I put before you is, do you truly desire the will of God? Do you truly desire the will of God? Jesus did, of course. And so he did and said nothing apart from the will of God. The Jews did not and therefore could not recognize the will of God when it was in front of them, spoken and modeled by Jesus. The contrast between Jesus and the Jews is first seen in their conflicting wills. And the key here is in recognizing grace. Get this. All who will humble themselves before God will know that Jesus is the Christ. That's been God's message from the beginning. Deuteronomy 4. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Jeremiah 29. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. This is what Jesus is echoing in this passage. If you will humble yourself, if your true desire is the will of God and not your own will, you will know that the words of my, that my words are from God. Grace, here's the idea. Pride blinds, but humility gives sight. God gives sight through humility. Humble yourselves, and you will know that Jesus is the Christ. The next question is in verse 18. Jesus again is speaking. The one who speaks on his own authority speaks his own glory. But the one, or, or seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Here's the implied question. Are you after your own glory, or are you after God's? Grace, put that question before you. What is the motivation, primary motivation in your life? Is it your own glory and sense of self and well-being, or is it the glory of God? Jesus, in contrast, sought the glory of God, not his own, proving that he spoke in God's authority and in truth. And in contrast, Jesus said, you Jews are seeking your own glory. And therefore you speak on your own authority, which means you do not represent God and speak lies. Here's third. Near and dear to the heart of every Jew was the law of Moses. In this regard, Jesus said in verse 19, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. And here's the question. Do you keep the law of Moses, the one that you speak so highly of? Put this before you. Do you keep the law of Moses, the one you speak so highly of, and here's the key for the Jews, and believe in the one that you speak so highly of and believe you are judging me based on, judging Jesus based on. The Jews rightly esteemed the law as good and given by God. They were right in that, but they had two main problems. Their two main problems were that, one, they misunderstood that the law or obedience to the law would bring salvation. That's a big problem. Rather than the law being given by God to bring knowledge of sin and to point them to look to God for salvation. And second, the second mistake they made was they believed that they kept the law in a way sufficient to save them. So one, they believed it could, and two, they believed they obeyed it enough that it would. There's a big contrast here. There's an ironic contrast. Do you see it already, Grace? The irony is that in every way, Jesus perfectly kept the law as God intended it to be kept. But they condemned him as 
having violated it. While in contrast, they misunderstood the law so that they could not truly obey it. And on top of that, they even violated their own misunderstanding of the law. So Jesus is pointing out your hypocrisy. You're wrong to think the law can save you. You're more wrong to think that you're obeying it enough that it would. And on top of that, you're not even obeying the law as you misunderstand it. How's that for a mouthful? (laughs) I didn't even look at my notes for that. Okay, so here's the bottom line. We're going to see a specific example of what I meant in just a minute. But the bottom line, Grace, is that none of us, here's the point, none of us has perfectly kept or can perfectly keep the commands of God. This is why Jesus being there is so critical and him bringing up the law is so critical. He did for us what we were powerless to do. And in that moment, he was offering obedience to the Mosaic law to them in himself, and yet they accused him of breaking it while believing that they kept it. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Grace, if your hope is in your obedience, you will remain lost. But Jesus came to provide a different path, the path of grace through faith, and all who would humbly receive him who did keep the law. In the next exchange, uh, both Jesus and the Jews speak. And in that, we find the fourth question and the fourth contrast. Jesus says at the end of 19, why do you seek to kill me? Verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? The question that Jesus put before the Jews is, do you bring life or do you bring death? God brings life to all who will receive him. He is the father of life. Well, the evil one is the father of death. Therefore, all who are truly of God will be life givers, life proclaimers. The gospel is the power of God unto eternal life, unto salvation for all who believe. And all who are of the devil will be death givers. Again, ironically, both Jesus and the Jews, this is, this is significant. Listen, Grace. Ironically, both, the, both Jesus and the Jews came to bring death. Jesus and the Jews came to bring death. The contrast is not in that, but the contrast is in the fact that the Jews came to bring Jesus' death while Jesus came to offer himself to death. The Jews would end Jesus' life while Jesus would bring life through his death. That's awesome. Do you bring life or do you bring death? True people of God, know that God is life. Find life in him and bring life to the world. Next, the fifth contrast. Are you interested in seeing party tricks or the power and presence of God? Verse 21, Jesus said to them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. There's this buzz, there's this clamoring, there's water to wine and and these different things that Jesus had done, these signs. And it's as if Jesus were a traveling circus to these people. Pretty, Pretty amazing to talk about, but not much more. Jesus' question was, are you more interested in seeing signs and the things that I do that you can't explain? Or are you interested in seeing the presence of God? Are you here to see magic or Christ? Are you here to see signs or the Son of God? Jesus did perform miraculous signs for the glory of God and to validate his ministry. We've talked about that. Here he was certainly referring to one in particular. We know that because of the next two verses. But his healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath, you remember that? He healed this man who had been there for decades, but he did it on the Sabbath and caused a stir. That intrigued the crowds, and 
piqued the interest of the Jewish leaders, but in the end they despised and disbelieved and even condemned Jesus for that healing. At the same time, the Jewish leaders, at the same time that Jesus was mighty to save, the Jewish leaders were largely impotent and dishonored God in their pride and unbelief. Jesus offered himself to the world in love. But the world was more interested in seeing exciting things than they were in receiving Jesus as the word and salvation of God. Two more. Within the law of Moses, there are rules concerning circumcision and the Sabbath. Jesus says the law of Moses reflected something that the fathers had even before Moses in circumcision. But within the law of Moses, there are rules concerning circumcision and the Sabbath. And within the New Testament, we see that those two laws in particular got a lot of attention from the Jewish leaders. More often than not, though, they got attention for wrong reasons. Principally, that the Jewish leaders often lorded a misunderstood and misapplied version of those things over the people. So with that is a backdrop. Look at verse 22. Moses gave you circumcision, Jesus said. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. It predates Moses. And, you're circumc- and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? So in other words, this is back to what I said earlier. You think that on the basis of your obedience to the law you can be saved and you're wrong. You misunderstand the law and you even break your own misunderstanding of the law, and here's an example of that. The the question Jesus posed in order to provide contrast between him and his critics was this, is the Sabbath for man or is man for the Sabbath? Jesus' answer was that the Sabbath was for man. He, He knew this and was reminding them of this because he was this. He is Lord of the Sabbath. It was given by God. The Sabbath was given by God as a blessing for his people to provide them rest and relief from Hard toil that was made harder by the curse. But the answer of the Jews was the opposite. They'd made the Sabbath into a burden for the people that no one could bear. But Jesus, as with all of the commands of God, perfectly kept the Sabbath, even in healing this man on it, but was accused of violating it by doing that. Again, in contrast, the Jewish leaders missed and violated the true meaning of the Sabbath along with their own misguided rules on the Sabbath, by doing circumcision work on it. In other words, if if I can't heal a whole man, you can't circumcise him just to keep a different aspect of the law. You miss it. And so in pointing out their hypocrisy and disobedience, Jesus was showing again that he truly was speaking the truth from God, while those accusing him of being misguided were speaking lies from Satan. Finally, lastly, verse 24. Jesus highlighted the thing that was at the heart of the problem here. How could they get this so wrong? How how could they misunderstand this so thoroughly and completely with the Son of God standing in front of them? And so verse 24, here's your problem. Do not judge by appearances. I don't look like much, do I? (laughs) I don't have what you expect me to have. I haven't been to seminary. I don't have a PhD in anything. But judge with right judgment. And the question was, by what standard do you judge the things you are so forcefully speaking about? You're, you're talking with great authority, or as if you have great authority, Jewish leaders. You're talking with deep conviction, 
by what authority do you come to these conclusions? What standard are you using to discern whether I speak on God's behalf or not? I'm making significant claims, Jesus acknowledged, to be sure. But by what standard are you evaluating them? How do you decide whether I'm telling you the truth or not? Well, here's the thing, Grace. Jesus always judges with right judgment. Judgment based on perfect understanding and judgment based on a person's heart. But in contrast, the Jewish leaders judged with wrong judgment. Judgment based on an imperfect assessment of a person's appearance, how they look on the outside. Jesus had perfect insight into what was in them. The Jews had a busted assessment of what was on the outside of them. Jesus looks at the heart of the man, whether it is filled with love for God and love for neighbor. While his debating partners here looked at the looks of a man, whether or not he meets their external expectations. It was because the leaders were judging with the wrong standard and with flawed insight that they got Jesus so tragically wrong. And ultimately, that was because they were still dead in their sin. They were blinded spiritually. They needed new spiritual sight. And so may we avoid this mistake, Grace. May we make sure to evaluate every person and every event and every claim, especially that and those of Jesus, by the right standard. That is, by the Word of God, with humble posture, acknowledging that our insight is always limited and often flawed. As you struggle with what someone else is doing to you, or know these things, see these things, learn from these things, your insight is always limited into their heart, and your assessment is often flawed, and so is mine. And so be humble, especially as you consider the things of Christ. Here's my conclusion. In the end, the main point that Jesus was making was that despite the insistence of the Jews to the contrary, he was from God. He taught the things of God. And he lived entirely, every word and every deed and every thought and every feeling, as God willed. He was with them and taught them because God had sent him to do just that and to say just those things. He was there to offer himself to them as a ransom for their sins and as a means of reconciling them to God that they thought they had on their own through obedience to the law, but so desperately needed and could not provide for themselves. Tragically, however, instead of receiving this gracious gift of God and the person of Christ, the Jews believed themselves to be right and right already with God. So they judged Jesus wrongly according to their own broken standard. They lived hypocritically. And therein, Jesus said, and his point is, they proved themselves that they were the ones Although they accused him, they were the ones not truly of God. Again, may we learn from this error, Grace. May God grant us the ability to see this same tendency that's in all of us. Every one of us has the same tendency. Then, may we look to Jesus as the Christ, the only Son of God. When we know that we cannot do it on our own, when we know that we have and continue to fall short of the glory of God apart from God's help, may we look to Jesus as the Christ, as the Jews ought to have in this passage. May we look to him as the Son of God, as he truly was standing before them. May we look to them as the Savior of the world, the fulfiller of the law, and the great longing of every heart. If we will, this is what Jesus offered them, and this is what he offers you and I right now. If we will, he will receive us. He will forgive us. He will sanctify us. He will preserve us. 
and he will glorify us when he comes again.